Abraham Heschel, who um, one of kind of uh, the renowned Presbyterian pastors of the last hundred years, calls one of the greatest students of the prophets of the 20th century, Abraham Heschel says, the shallowness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity, incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures is a simple fact, a simple fact of fallen humanity, which no explanation can either justify or hide. On that cheery note, we enter into Micah. Micah, the book, it's a prophetic book. It's written by a country boy, really. I'm pretty sure he was from either Davie or Davidson County. Definitely past the Yakin or halfway to High Point. <clears throat> He's from a good bit outside of Jerusalem, and, and he and Isaiah were contemporaries, actually. But Isaiah was like an urban activist. He was a big city prophet. And Micah was, was just one who spoke to regular folk. Now, he spoke to regular folk about everything that was going on in their lives in their city. His, his prophecies do not shy away from what's happening in cities like uh, the capitals of Judah or Israel. Especially because the practices of the leaders, both religious, well, to, to make a distinction between religious leaders and non-religious leaders would be... Um, that doesn't really exist in the ancient Near East. So the leaders, they tolerated or practiced horrible things. And Mike had some things to say about that. But here was the problem with those guys is they had this veneer of, of, of religion. It was false, but it was strong. Somehow they, they claimed a type of godliness with their religious language, with their prayer times and their rituals. But they had no eye, eyes, no glasses to see the wickedness and folly of their ways, especially when it related to their neighbors. They thought that God would bless them if they did some religious stuff. Even if their life between Sundays was marked by neglecting the lowly, mistreating women and children, price gouging their clients, and exploiting their poor. Now, between Sundays was Saturdays back then, but you get what I'm saying. Micah brings the heat for six chapters, and plus some after this, on what we call cultural Christianity, what Soren Kierkegaard called Christendom, a community that, that, that talked like a duck, prayed like a duck, went to church like a duck, but ducked out of all the responsibilities and realities of who God was and what their calling was in the world a calling marked by love and justice. So Micah has these two things, right? The utter um, hypocrisy and duplicity of the church culture and the church's inability to see God and God's calling on their own lives. Micah and God must have talked about what Micah would write. That's an assumed reality and write one. Because in Micah 6, the, um, 
he starts to address one of the root, the root problems. He does it from God's perspective. So he takes on God's voice and he says something akin early on to, y'all been living in the shadow of who I am. You religious folks, you leaders have been living as if your primary concern was you. You're living as if I didn't care about how you treated your neighbor, your countrymen, your clients, or your enemies. And worse, you've been asking me to sprinkle a little spiritual fairy dust on everything you do. Oh, my people, 6-3 says, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you out from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. By the way, those are like hot shots in the Old Testament. Just so you know. Look, y'all, as he says, he's like, I rescued you from abject poverty and absolute slavery from the most powerful nation that existed in the world in that day. That is who you are. And that is who he is for us here on Miller Street. Means a couple of things for us. Is that, that God's character and God's gracious salvation is the foundation and fuel for whatever comes next. I'm going to try to bring it hard in a couple minutes with Micah. Don't blame it on him. I'm going to tell you what God wants of us. But everything I say is founded and fueled by God's unbelievable rescuing grace. Of people who are blinded and rebellious and broken. That grace is the foundation and the fuel for everything. In seminary, we learned this little uh, ditty uh, that says that the indicatives precede the imperatives. And y'all like, you had to go to seminary for that? <laughs> the indicatives are the statement facts, right? Who God is, who you are in Christ, who Jesus is, right? Beloved and secure in his love. All those realities that exist by grace. And they always precede the imperatives, the commands, the things that we do, the calls to obedience, which are real, the, 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 the ethics of the kingdom, which are real. But that's what Micah's doing here. He is saying, you have been slaves to sin, sin in us, sin around us, sin on top of us. And now we're not, you're not just freed slaves, you are beloved children of God. And this is how I want you to operate in the world. I love to liberate, to free and forgive people. Rescue always precedes responsibility in God's economy. Do not forget that in what I say. So God establishes the reality of who he is, what he's done, who we are, how we uh, are, are beloved by him, and everything else follows. We have been redeemed from the house of slavery, both literally and figuratively, is what he's, Micah is saying. 
And this is where it gets real, real, kind of real deep. So you have this prophet, right? He's saying these things. He's decrying oppression and hypocrisy of all the, of the leaders in the, in the towns and in, the, in the, the region. And then Micah takes on their voice by responding with a few questions. And he says this. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With a calf, a calves a year old? And then it makes this little crazy twist. He says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands rivers of oil? My firstborn for the transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. I'm not reading that ironically. These are ridiculous questions. It starts off okay with like kneeling and all that stuff, but this thousand rams, 10,000 child sacrifice, that's anathema to God, written in his law long before that. But they're approaching him like, you know, Mike is imagining God's people responding to this incredible um, uh, grace of God that delivered them from from slavery, and and they're responding with like, God, um, is this going to cost me any more? You know, I'm doing the best I can. The response to God's amazing grace in their communal life is, what more shall I have to give? Can we negotiate some kind of different way of being? It is the height of self-absorption and the definitive statement of religious hypocrisy. God, you rescued us from sin in this world, on us. Now, now, like, can we figure out how it's going to work for me? Can, can we, you know, I, I was kind of joking about all the crazy stuff, and you know, but like maybe just a few rituals, little goods and services from my end, a little, little extra, you know, giving or something like that. Can, I, can, can we make that work? I, I, I guess what I'm just really asking is, is like, how's this whole redemption thing going to work for me? That's how you need to hear this most famous verse when Micah puts in his own words. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. First, you've got to love it when a text gives you the three points, your next points in your sermon, so that's a big win on that. But you, what you don't need to do is hear this thing as a, as a bumper sticker or a, even a battle cry. Not even a tattoo, though Springer and I are working on a really good design right now. I just want you to know that. But a sobering tendency or sobering response to our send tendency to be self-absorbed in our lives and self-righteous in our religious posturing. That's how we have to hear this verse, if we're going to hear it as it originally was given. God is saying, in light of my character, my gracious redemption, my love of mercy and justice, this is what I want from you, which is why we need these new glasses of this um, it's not a bifocal, a trifocal reality. 
of justice, mercy, and humility. Do justice. Justice is simply the condition where rightness in the world, righteousness, integrity, and advocacy for truth, beauty, and goodness exists in the world. It's the ways of God writ large, or as Cornel West says, and I think this is a genius statement, justice is what love looks like in public. Doing justice is, is an action verb that he calls us to. That means that everything we do all day long, in the grocery store or line or in the cubicle, all day, every day, we see our neighbors in light of either what they're enduring or perpetrating, and then we see it, and then we speak into it. We live into it. Silence amid injustice is complacency and complacency. Come on, y'all. It's got to be the most tempting thing in our day. You know, swipe right. Keep going. Your conscience, just swipe right. In light of the most vulnerable, abused, mistreated, scorned, and exploited human beings in the world, in light of uh, another mass shooting in the middle of last night, how will we live? What the responsibilities we have, we don't all have all those responsibilities all the time, but how will we live? What justice will we do? You guys, like, I got more justice t-shirts than you can imagine. Like, I got... I got do justice, love mercy. I got love can't remain silent. I've got uh, practice radical empathy. T-shirts don't mean anything except for the support you give to the organizations that, you know, anyway. It's all virtue signaling and grandstanding. Don't worry about any of that stuff. It's about actually how we live our lives. We live in a world that is utterly corrupt for its own gain. How now shall we live? Resisting participating in it, for sure. But in light of that, and, and I want you to, like, like, let's just get over ourselves. There's no, like, safe place or entity or organization or area in which you can work that you're free from, like, injustice happening. Trust me, I work in a church. <laughs> but, but also our... Our job isn't to create some utopian ideal as if we had the power to do that in the first place. By the way, want to have lunch about that? That's a fraught with danger. Our job is just to simply, in the day in, day out, mundane realities, move forward with justice. But we're responsible for it. Look, you don't have to be a political liberal to know that Forsyth County has top five worst economic mobility in the country. You don't have to be a political conservative to see that good, hard work and personal responsibility are a gift from God. We don't need to play any of those games. But I would suggest that you go hang out with people who are really skilled in the gift of doing justice. First, they're going to make you uncomfortable. That's kind of their point. But that's okay. Let them mentor you in what love looks like in public. You can disagree. They don't get it right either all the time. It's all right. But never forget that Jesus is transforming and liberating grace. It's, it's, that's where it flows from. He's the one who has set us free. So 
free. That we're not just freed from the oppression, but we're free to love our oppressors. That kind of freedom. Don't be afraid to examine your lives to see where it's lacking in these things, where you lack integrity or a desire for repair or advocacy for those who suffer in this broken world. It's founded in grace. God will heal it. Just give yourself to the process. Micah's second command is even wilder than the first in some ways. The second lens that he uses is, is about um, less about the, the hands-on work, but the, the want of our hearts. He says simply, I want you to love mercy. Isn't that wild? Yes, he wants thoughtful, deliberate, liberating acts in the world, but he wants your affections to be affected by his mercy. He wants you to evaluate your deeds and how you live in this world, but he also wants you to examine your affections, your longings, your wanters, your passions. He wants us to be head over heels in love with mercy. Mercy in the, is the word hesed here, which is the word God also uses uh, for loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness to his people, his covenant promise to be gracious to us. So God's whole thing here is um, that in loving mercy, we are somehow displaying his loving mercy to the world. We mirror his kindness to us by getting butterflies in our stomachs around when we see mercy about to happen. That's hard. Because I am, <clears throat> I am deeply tempted by cynicism over the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of my own soul. I blame it on like listening to a lot of Smiths growing up, but... Um, Maybe a dose of grunge in the 90s, maybe Father John Misty now, but none of that's true. It's, in a, it's a way to not deal with the hard reality that hope is dangerous, that trusting mercy is unnerving, that longing for it and loving it means you're going to get your heart broken sometimes. Sarcasm and despair are, are easy. But Jesus has begun a transformation in me and in you. It's actually a transformation we kind of really want. Even though it's hard. To look at the world with bated breath on what God might be doing next to bring pardon and kindness and forgiveness in the world. I mean, that's a hard place to be but it is the beautiful place to be. And yo, if we need anything in this world, do we not need 55-gallon drums of mercy just pouring out over all of us? It is a, we, we have a, a natural resource crisis in mercy distribution. For our neighbors, for our enemies, for many of you, for yourselves, for the earth, for the economy, the church, for your family members. 
Here's the sneaky thing about mercy and justice, is that justice lovers, I know I love you so much, but sometimes you're not that great at mercy. And you mercy lovers, I love you so much, sometimes you're not that good at justice. So I know I'm both, I kind of toggle back and forth. But God doesn't struggle here. It's not a contradiction. Any contradiction we're experiencing is, our, is on us, not on it, and certainly not on him. Thomas Aquinas, I'll say St. Thomas Aquinas and you'll trust it more. <laughs> Justice and mercy are so united that one ought, not, one ought to be mingled with the other. Justice without mercy is cruelty. Mercy without ju- justice is debauchery. I hope you'll be able to, to Brian Stevens is coming to town next month. I hope you're able to go see him or read Just Mercy. It's a wildly beautiful story, movie now, or movie a couple years ago, but more important, a life that has been able to, to lock these things in together. And this stuff is not easy. It doesn't come naturally. It only comes supernaturally. We have to be trained by God to have a clear-eyed view of, of the suffering and the brokenness in this world. And then we have to have be trained by God to see how he enters into that world ready to distribute his love and mercy to people in the middle of it. I have a friend, Ray. Some of you know him. He actually converted here at Redeemer. He's a pastor in New Orleans. Actually, he, uh, Ben Milner was his intern up in, um, uh, in uh, Jersey when uh, Ben was up at Princeton doing seminary. Ray is one of the most embodied people of Micah 6-8 I know. He is totally clear about his city, New Orleans. The corruption, the violence, the exploitation, both modern inequity and very ancient iniquity. He's got that. But he loves that city with his gut full of mercy. He delights in the culture, people, art, music, and food. You didn't get any credit for it because it's normal. So. Um, but he sees all that's wrong in that world. And what he does is day in, day out, long for mercy to show up to his good neighbors and his bad neighbors. That's what he does. Justice is what love looks like in public. But guess what? So is mercy. Mercy is what love looks like in public. And this mingling of those things that Aquinas says and Ray embodies, it is so hard. We have so much work to do together on this. It is not easy. Look, when I became a Christian, I was told that I'd never wanted justice. All I needed was mercy. Justice was kind of a bad word. And mercy, as I started to experience, became this kind of weird get-out-of-jail-free card but not like healthy. And, and what I realized is neither justice nor mercy were happening. So when we see the brokenness, the pain, the loss, the discrimination, the bias, the fear, the wrongdoing, we respond to that injustice by living out justice, first weeding it out of our own lives, righting the wrongs we can, vindicating what is true, speaking up for what is right, but the whole times our hearts are like, Ooh, just so excited, pitter-patting, because mercy might be coming through that door. That's what it is, that we have this kind of longing that God's unmerited favor and kindness would show up in the world. To the wronged and the wronged. To the victim and the perpetrator. 
You cannot settle with, for justice without mercy or mercy without justice and be faithful to Micah's text here. You just can't. In God's kingdom, mercy and justice embrace. They're held together. And what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. Which is exactly why you get to the third lens. Walk humbly. Because we don't have the shoulders to bear this. We just can't. I don't know if there's a more complicated era in, I, I'm certain not in my lifetime, but certainly in several lifetimes, or probably in several lifetimes, to figure out how to do justice and love mercy together. You, you, you can't tweet or talk without running amok of it one way or another. I was about to say I want to be honest with you, but I typically try to be honest with you. <laughs> Justice is what love looks like in public. Mercy is what love looks like in public. Humility is what we look like when we're serving the God of mercy and justice. And I'm not speaking to every one of us individually, but as an American church, it's not looking real great for us. Neither in the humility camp or the walking with God camp. Not all of it. Not all of us. You don't hear me criticize all the beautiful ways that you guys are faithful in the mundane obedience of your daily lives. Please hear me encourage you that those little seemingly meaning meaningless, monotonous steps of faithfulness are absolutely beautiful and actually have the power of the resurrection behind them. They matter. So many of you are trying to figure out what this means, what loving mercy looks like, what doing justice looks like, and you're really steeped in the way of walking in reliance upon God in this. Just keep on keeping on. If you have someone come here and tell you exactly how to do it, don't listen. You're walking and working in supernatural and eternal realities. And yet, we as a larger church have some reckoning to do on this. We just do. William Law says, humility is nothing else but a right judgment of yourselves. So don't be afraid. There's no power in doing justice or loving mercy without clear humility. It's okay. We can see ourselves by God's own standards. And you know what God's own standard was? Well, thankfully he showed us. He came to us. The perfect incarnation of justice and mercy and humility. Jesus is just. He slung over tables and sat down and created a whip and then used the whip for the price-gouging moneylenders who are profiting off the backs of the poor. A kind of not-so-peaceful protest for justice and for the integrity of God's name that forgiveness comes free. Jesus is mercy. He was wrongfully incarcerated. And during his execution, he looked at the crowds with compassion 
and sitting in his electric chair said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. And Jesus' humility, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You guys, this sermon isn't about you finding a cause. There are lots of causes as far as the curse is found. It's not about a cause. It's about having a Lord, a Lord who loves us and who has treated us with such amazing mercy, has done so much justice for us, and has humbled himself before us that all we can do is walk in his ways. And when we don't, he's the God of justice, love, and mercy. So return, run to him again. It's okay. He knows. And he's changing you for his good for our good and his glory. Amen.